0: hey, everyone, as we get deeper into 2022, it is time for all of us to do our part to save democracy and to show that America can and will stay on that arc of bending history towards justice. I want you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up to help our grassroots efforts. You can decide how you want to help. You can decide where you want to help. Fill out the survey. Tell us where it is you want to help. We'll put you in touch with the people who can put you to work. Join the union.us. Do your part. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to the Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by legendary Democratic strategist, senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, and host of That Trippy Show, Joe Trippy. Joe, welcome back. Great to be with you, Reed. So, Joe, This week, we're putting out a memo that you helped us put together which outlined five reasons why maybe things aren't as bad politically for Democrats and let's say democracy going into November as maybe we think they are. So today I wanted to go through these with you one by one because it sounds like there are indeed some things to be hopeful about. So before I get into the five things, just Joe, give us a sense of history, which is, you know, it's midterms are always difficult for first term presidents. But looking at the world through the prism as a lifelong Democrat and, you know, longtime Democratic strategist, what's your sense of the world as Democrats see it right now?
1: Look, there's a lot of doom and gloom out there. Too much of it. I think a lot of the press is pushing that right now. And I think Democrats always tend to see things worse than they are. <laughs> I don't know exactly why, but we do. I actually think that's not bad because it usually energizes Democrats to get activated and to start working harder, which is one of the things I am counting on. And I think we're starting to see happen out there.
0: And to that point, you know, last week there was a story in Politico. The headline, Joe, was Joe Biden loses reelection to generic Republican. But if you read the actual story, it said that, in fact, Joe Biden beats everyone not named generic Republican. (laughs) Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Mike Pence, Ron DeSantis. And so, you know, it's one of those things as a vestigial Republican, we used to complain and complain and moan and whine about the fact that, like, the media didn't treat us fairly. You know, they never gave us a fair shake. There was the liberal media, the lamestream media. And now it seems like Joe Biden, who is, first of all, an altogether decent human being, but I think also given the numerous crises he inherited from the worst president we've ever had. One is voters seem to understand all that. But two, the media seems to feel like there's this weird false equivalency that I think contributes to that sort of doom and gloom attitude.
1: Well, it's false equivalency. It's also like they treat the Republicans in Congress and the Senate like they're innocent bystanders and in all this somehow. They're not even here, which is kind of true in the sense that they're missing in action but they do have a lot to do with it. That's why the margins are so tight to get anything done and they're opposing everything. I do think that the other thing that is going on is, look, let's face it, no one's happy that we're still in COVID. No one's happy with their children and whether they're in school or not or how it's impacting our kids. And when people are unhappy, the president of the United States, fair or not, his approval ratings are gonna go down. I don't think any of those things necessarily can be true in November of 22, months from now. But we'll see. I do think, though, that there are a bunch of things that are going on that I think things are likely to improve from where they are now and the way people see COVID, the economy, and their wages and their jobs, which I think will impact in a positive way as we get closer to the election. But I think fundamentally, and reading you and I talked about this, everybody thought that Republicans were going to gain 10 seats just by redrawing the lines. And Democrats would start 10 seats down
0: before a single vote was cast. That didn't happen at all. All right. So, Joe, you're talking about redistricting, right? So that was the first thing on your list. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Well, you know, what
1: looks like for two reasons. One, Republicans had done a great job of redrawing lines in 2010, that there's just no more red districts they can draw out there without making seats unsafe for them. And secondly, Democrats have fared a lot better in the redistricting battles and courts have intervened in Ohio and other places. And right now it looks like there's actually going to be between four and six more congressional seats that actually supported Joe Biden for president than there were when those districts were all drawn in 2020. So one, redistricting has gone much better. Two, we know that millions more people did vote for the Democratic ticket in 2020. We have the names of those people. I mean, the different campaigns out there organizationally know the names of those people. And midterms, elections are always about turnout in a lot of ways. And I think Democrats and other organizations are really doing a good job of preparing for that. And I think there's something we'll talk to about the union later on, hopefully, on this. that will get into that. But the other thing is, look, they're number two two or three on the list would be their their nominating
0: lunatics i mean 2010 if you remember the tea party year saw some true weirdos whether or not it was sharon angle in nevada the witch lady in delaware that guy in was in missouri who said that you know rape victims their bodies automatically abort babies i mean just all sorts of craziness they are still not normal but comparatively i guess maybe they were the three horsemen of the apocalypse in retrospect but you've got Herschel Walker, you've got Dr. Oz,
1: you've got one after another in these races, a lot of them supported by Trump or endorsed by Trump or pushed by Trump, or it's just a primary in which everybody's trying to out-Trump each other to get his endorsement. So I think they're helping us. Then you go, okay, what are the Democrats doing? There really is a feeling of, look, There are a lot of good candidates, and whoever wins, we're all getting behind them. It's not sort of, we're all going to go home and sit on our hands. I think that could happen on the Republican side. It's not going to happen on the Democratic side.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, just one thing is I saw a survey last week in Georgia 81% of Republican voters are supporting Herschel Walker. 81%. So tell me again how Donald Trump isn't in charge of the Republican Party. He absolutely is. And Because of some
1: of these candidates he's rallied behind, these people are going to say crazy things and the rest of the party is going to be asked and, you know, stand by him or walk away. I mean, it's going to create a huge mess. You got DeSantis and Trump fighting with each other in Florida over who's running for president, but it could impact DeSantis in his race for governor. So I just think that the friction and the divide in the Republican Party And even, like I said, that divide is often a Trump candidate versus another Trump candidate trying to outmaneuver each other. I think that's a good place. You know, if you go back and you look at who Democrats nominated for the most part in 2018, that class of candidates was instrumental in winning the majority. I think it's even a better class of candidates that Democrats have. And in a lot of ways, this will be the craziest group of candidates that the Republicans have put together, mostly because, you know, back when you're talking about 2010, Reed, most of that activity was in those three or four Senate seats. This is definitely happening in most of the Senate races out there. And frankly, when you go down to House races, it's worse. It's the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the
0: Jim Jordan's and more of them running. And they're attacking the last of the rhinos, right? Like the white Republican rhino. The white rhino is an endangered species, nearly an extinct species. But Green's an interesting one, too, because last week she endorsed J.D. Vance for his race for the U.S. Senate in Ohio. And, you know, Joe, it used to be that if you were in a contested primary, you tried to appeal to the base, but give yourself enough room to come back somewhere close to the middle, maybe not right down the middle, but closer to the middle where you could start to peel off some of those undecided voters. When you take the endorsement of someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, you have told people I am in the crazy lane and I ain't getting out. And if you do, Joe, this is the other dynamic. If you try and normalize, she will be the first person to attack you. And then, you know, in a place like Missouri, right, which is a very conservative state, don't get me wrong. The three leading candidates are a guy who he and his wife pulled guns on protesters outside their house, the disgraced ex-Navy SEAL former governor who locked up his girlfriend in the basement and had to resign, and the sitting attorney general of the state who signed on to an amicus brief to overturn the 2020 election. That's the normal part, Joe, of the party.
1: Right. And it only gets worse
0: when you get down to the
1: house seats, we're talking about you know senator governors races for the most part here where this is going on. But when you get down to the next level, oh my gosh, the amount of already crazy things that are being said, done, policies pushed, I think that's all going to accrue to a- already damaged party. I think it, that's what's going to happen. The same thing when you talked about Biden versus the generic Republican versus the known entities out there. You give people that choice. And they're picking Biden. I think the same exact thing is going to happen because of the kind of candidates Republicans and MAGA and Trump are rallying behind and the quality of the Democratic candidates. I think that's one of the big things that people are missing.
0: We, you know, as former Republicans, like to say that when it comes to campaigning, policy doesn't matter. But when it comes to governing, it does. And it does have political and electoral effects. And we were hearing recently in very conservative parts of Texas that these very conservative Republican voters have had it with Greg Abbott. They've had it with the stuff around vaccines. They've had it with the chaos he's created around schools. They hate all the ugliness and second order effect. They're really upset about January 6th. And when we got this information, we were frankly surprised. This is not what you expect to hear out of a conservative county in you know sort of Midwest Texas. This is the kind of thing you expect to hear out of you know, Highland Park in Dallas, right, where there's sort of wealthy, upper-crust Republicans who just find Trump distasteful and the whole thing ugly and want it to go away. But, you know, if you've got rural or exurban Republican voters saying, I've had it with a guy like Greg Abbott, that could spell some real trouble for them. Yeah, it
1: does. And I think the other thing is, and it's something Stuart Stevens talked about a lot, if you nationalize this race over the things that you just talked about, over our democracy, over the... What people like Abbott have been doing and sort of nationalize the race in a way that coalesces the pro democracy side of things versus this crazy anti democratic anti democracy party. I think if the race is nationalized, that's the other thing that's true historically. Is the parties that have succeeded in picking up states uh, seats? Excuse me. It's always happened when they were able to nationalize the race, and you know that going back to Bush and. And other times that it's happened, it was because the party in power with the presidency was able to nationalize the race. I think that's what we have to do. And I think that's starting to happen more and more with the January 6th committee and the facts that continue to come out. I think people are more and more starting to see what the stakes really are in this election. And I think this race will crystallize around the national battleground of democracy. I think that's going to impact corporate America. Hopefully, journalism will get what the stakes are. You're seeing a little bit more of that, too.
0: So, you know, let's turn a little bit to the externalities. Let's dive a little deeper on there, which is if what's happening in some of the bigger states and cities continues to happen, which is Omicron burned hot and fast, still far too many people getting sick and dying. But if that starts to wane, if the stock market can get over the fact that, like, you can either have inflation or you can have a quarter point interest rate hike, but you can't have both or you don't want both, then that starts to stabilize the stock market, which, again, should not be an indicator of necessarily economic health. But people are getting jobs if the economy starts to, I hate to use the word open up again, but we start to clear some of these hurdles, you know, whether or not it's the supply chain stuff, people are getting back to work, right? Millions and millions of people are getting back to work. But it's like there's still this sluggishness because Omicron sort of hangs over us. And, you know, one thing that Alex and I were talking about the other day was because we were going through this list and I said, well, what about, you know, Russia? Because that's an externality that if Vladimir Putin decides to start a war, like, you know, a lot of things are off the table. But he made a really good point, too, which is if Donald Trump were in the White House, Ukraine would be a parking lot right now. Joe Biden is actually the person you'd want to be sitting in the Oval Office because he has demonstrated to a thug like Putin, if you do this, it will be painful to you. And that's not something certainly that Donald Trump would have done, but it's also something I think that is a key indicator of a president who's not only a big D Democrat, it's also a very staunch small D Democrat, too. This
1: is exactly the point that these are really clouds of uncertainty. I mean, people are just uncertain about what's going on with COVID or the economy, but I think those clouds are going to lift. And as they do, Biden, his approval numbers are going to go up. But I also think that the critical in all this is to rally the American people to the cause of coming together and fighting this stuff. I mean, look, the disinformation and outrage machine that Fox and OAN and, and Breitbart and Newsmax, this billions of dollars were spent to build this. And now it controls a lot of the dialogue. You know, there'll be another outrage lie tomorrow that they'll all rally behind and there's really never been anything out there to knock it down. Certainly, there's not going to be billions spent to do that. But I do think people coming together to basically rally together to take that disinformation outrage machine on in communications, but also organizationally to rally people to take their skills and talents and apply them to this challenge and join together to do it. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons I joined the Lincoln Project was one, This isn't Republican versus Democrat, right versus left. It really is everybody putting all that stuff beside and joining together. It's pro-democracy versus those who want to destroy it and standing together to do that. That's why I joined the Lincoln Project, but more so to see the real possibility with just the content and message and strength of the messaging that you and team had put together through 2020 and join that with some of the stuff that, you know, I had pioneered in digital in the Dean campaign and pull that together and see if we could help create a movement of of Americans of every stripe to fight this stuff and join. And, and people can do that because uh, we've got this site up. It's in its initial stages, but it's jointheunion.us. And people can go there and look at the skill sets that would really help and see where they could apply themselves to become part of this movement to stand up to the anti-democratic forces that are out there.
0: Right. And so, Joe, I want to spend a little bit more time on the union in a second. But one of the things that I think is really important, and I was on the phone with our new board member, Megan Matson, who's also an expert in the, the sort of field stuff. And I said, you know, on any given day, you and me, Megan and me, any of us, we would not door knock together in a regular world. Differences of parties, differences of issues, whatever the case might be. But if you say, look, this is about democracy, this is about continuing the American experiment, this is ensuring that every American, and we're far from perfection, but every American should have the opportunity to to achieve life, liberty, and happiness as they see it, right? If you can put it in that context, you can put any two people who believe in that next to each other and have them walk down the street together. It's not about the Green New Deal. It's not about What, you own a gun? Well, I hunt. You hunt, right? Like, it's none of that, (laughs) right? You push all of that aside and you say, for this afternoon, for this weekend, for this month, for this year, we're going to work together. And I think that it has to be that big, Joe. It has to be that existential. Because if it's small, well, one, it's not inspiring. And two, it doesn't give people that necessary sort of umbrella to sort of live underneath comfortably together. That says, like, we're not always going to agree on everything, but in this moment, we agree on this. That's right. And I think, too, it gets back to what democracy is
1: about. It's about people with completely different views coming together to find a way to share this great country. And that means none of us are going to get our way all the time. That's what's starting to happen here you guys can't beat us at the polls. We don't care. We're going to win by any means necessary because we want to do it our way. That's just not how this works. And that's why I think it's also about building a sense of citizenship, that we all are citizens of this great country, and it's a duty, a responsibility, a service to come together and try to keep that experiment going and protect everybody's ability to vote and participate. And yeah, if in a, an election in which we had in 2020, where more people voted than ever before, you may be disappointed in the outcome. But now it's to get on with getting things done for the American people, which the Republican Party just has not been prepared to do. In fact, obstructing and tearing it down wherever they can.
0: And I want to get to that before we do. Everybody, Joe mentioned it. It's jointheunion.us. Go to the website. You can figure out how you can get involved, your skills, your area expertise go all the way through the process, fill out the survey for us. We're going to have a lot more to say about this in the next few weeks, but get in on the ground floor of this because there's plenty of work to do. And, you know, I think we've already had, Joe, in just a few days, we've already had tens of thousands of people sign up, which is just an incredible thing. But I do want to talk about that because, you know, again, as I say, policy doesn't matter necessarily, but not having a policy matters too. And I mean, Mitch McConnell actually said out loud, When asked what the Republican legislative agenda would be for 23-24, he said, I'll let you know after we win, which means it's just about winning. It's just about power. There is no agenda, nor will there be. I mean, the other thing is, if they put any of their
1: agenda out there, no one would vote for it. I mean, Trump has said this out loud, repeating Stalin. It's not important who votes. It's important of who counts the votes. They're coming together, and their single issue is to win by any means. And to wreck
0: democracy, because they cannot win in that kind of fair fight. They don't care about a fair fight. When you have the leader of the party, and Donald Trump is the leader of the party, repeating the words of one of the most murderous dictators in human history, not a great starting place for your party. And so many of them are just all in on it. Well, it's crazy,
1: because like, who would have ever thought that a Republican former president would be quoting Stalin And that Republicans and supposedly conservative voices would be rallying to defend Putin and support his claim to Ukraine It's crazy stuff that I never thought I would be hearing from any Republican, let alone what seems like the majority of voices in it.
0: Yeah. And when you have the Russian foreign ministry saying out loud that they would like Tucker Carlson to back it off a little bit because he's sort of embarrassing himself with how much he's cheerleading them. (laughs) you're sort of like, where are we? What kind of fever dream did we wake up in? And that it's not
1: just, you know, 20% of the party or 30% of the party. He said, Herschel Walker, 81% favor him. It's just an amazing thing. And look, every party can put up bad candidates, but the extent to which this thing has just fallen off the cliff of insanity, they're nominating lunatics.
0: Okay. So Joe, you've got, like I mentioned, Tucker Carlson, who is now the loudest mouthpiece for the Russian foreign ministry, but also is convincing so many Republicans. In the context of election 2022, what do Democrats need to do? And this is number four on your list. One of the things you see is the kind of candidates that are being
1: put out there by Democrats. Well, and I think they're very much like the class of 2018 that led to the majority of really strong candidates. And even where they're having ideological fights, let's say a Fetterman versus a Connor Lamb, let's say in Pennsylvania, you can sense in all the campaigns a real coalescing around whoever wins the primary, we're all going to get behind them, which I think is unusual for Democrats. We saw it in 2018, but I think one that has to happen in 2022, and it is happening you put those four factors together, particularly with the lunatic fringe that the Republicans look like they're moving to, I think 2022 is much
0: stronger than what the conventional wisdom is out there for Democrats. Well, I would also say that in 2020, you know, you had a lot of first time Democratic House members in purple districts that won in 18, lost in 20. But the Senate candidates, too, for the Democrats, although three of them won, four of them won, the truth was, it was a terrific class as well. So Democratic recruiting has been excellent over the last few cycles.
1: It's been very good. It's good this year. And the other thing I think that's different, I think Democrats have learned from the money mistakes that happened in 2020. I mean, the hundreds of millions of dollars that were put into races where we had no chance. I mean, against Mitch McConnell, for instance, in Kentucky. I think that people are going to be much more cautious about, not in a bad way, in a way of just really concentrating their firepower in the marginal places we have to win and not going to fall into the trap of pouring millions into places that there absolutely is no chance of winning, no matter how much we don't like Mitch McConnell or the enemy on the other side. If they can't be beat, they're not going to waste their time there.
0: James Carville said something in an interview last week about that. And, you know, James is a unique character all by himself. But he also said, like, Democrats need to stop thinking with their hearts so much and start thinking with their heads and be clear eyed about this. Like, you may want to beat Mitch McConnell more than anything in the whole world. But if 90 million dollars isn't going to do it, a billion dollars wasn't going to do it. That's what I'm saying. I think the party in that sense, I think, has matured quite a
1: bit, even over the last two years in terms of its focus. So I really think that, again, we're much stronger than a lot of the pundits think we are. And James has been totally
0: on point, I think, most of the times I've seen him talk about any of this. He's a little bit of the tough love, right? He's the one that comes in and tells you the things you know are true and that you have to listen to, but you don't necessarily want to listen to. That's the other part, too, is, you know, the the Dems coming together, Republicans are fractious. We're seeing even, you know, there was a little dust up last week about this no-name Tennessee congressional district, no offense to the people that live in it, Where Donald Trump endorsed one person who hasn't even officially gotten the race. You know, the radicals are endorsing like a true like Trump troll. And they're fighting about that when there's like two or three other highly qualified, incredible candidates, one of whom will actually probably win that primary and be the member of Congress. (laughs) So they're not even fighting on the front lines. They're fighting like three levels down into the crazy land. I know we talk a lot about the Senate races, you know, Dr.
1: Oz or Herschel Walker, but when you get down to these House races, it's even crazier just how deep into the conspiracy and the mega mind meld thing where they're trying to outmaneuver each other, this is all going to be much more obvious in race after race out there as, you know, the focus gets more on those races. One thing, getting back to James for a second, that he also talked about is how Democrats have failed to understand why it's so important to focus on secretary of state races and attorney general races. He's right about that. And I think that is a place where we've got to expose the wingers. I mean, in some of these races, there's only one person who might, in the entire race for secretary of state, who might have some pro-democracy lineage in them. So that's one place where I do think we all need to focus.
0: Yeah, and we get a lot of calls from supporters of ours saying, you know, what are you guys going to do in these down ballot races? And I think we'll do what we can. I think the advantage of those races, Joe, is that if you took a million dollars out of the $100 million of a race that you really cared about, but had no chance of winning and put it into a Secretary of State's race, it's probably the difference between winning and losing. Yeah, it may be the difference in who counts the votes. Right. So it's a pretty good investment. So, Joe, when you did work in Alabama for Doug Jones, one of my favorite recording artists, a guy named Jason Isbell, he wrote a song after the 16 election called Hope the High Road. And one of the lines in there is there can't be more of them than us. There can't be. And I think that's number five on the list, which is midterm elections are turnout elections, but also that there are more Americans who believe in democracy and the right way to do things in decency than there are people who aren't.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. They're out there and we've got to communicate. We've got to engage with them. We've got to build a an activist group that will rally them to the polls. Because in the end, with all the hurdles that they're throwing up and barriers to voting, we've got to swamp them. We've got to fight it legally and everywhere else. But in the end, there are more Americans who believe in democracy and civility and decency and in the union and in being together and sharing this country and its promise by compromising and moving forward, but not compromising with those who want to take democracy down and destroy it. You can't be an independent in that fight. It's joining that pro-democracy coalition that, you know, we're all trying to build out there.
0: You know, just thinking about last week was Holocaust Remembrance Week. And, you know, the question each of us has to ask ourselves, are we going to be a bystander? Just watch it all. Or are you going to be an upstander? And when you see something that needs to be addressed, even if it makes you uncomfortable, maybe when it makes you uncomfortable, you know, that's the signal in your brain. Oh, wait, I need to step up and do something about this. And so with that, you know, and we'll have a lot more to say about this. But, you know, Joe, we've just soft launched our, our grassroots hub, the union, join the dot us, where, again, all of these people, the millions of people who do believe in the things that I think we believe in and the greatness of the country and in the path it needs to be on can go and help out. And before we let everybody go and before I let you go, just give us a sense of in your experience you pioneered a lot of this stuff, right? But what does it look like to you when you start to see, we've had tens of thousands of people already sign up for this. What does that tell you in sort of a, even in a nascent phase about the energy that's available out there?
1: Every day we see it, people saying, okay, great, you know, what do I do? What can I do to stop this? And they think they're all alone. Well, you're not alone. There are hundreds of thousands, millions of Americans, more of us who are pro-democracy. I think what has to happen is a hub, a central place where everybody can sign up and gather, talk about the skills they have that they can apply or their interests, and then rally to November 2022 and win together. And I think what I'm seeing is reminiscent of movements that we've been successful in building in the past. You know, the most important thing that happened in the Dean campaign, the most important phrase I think that we ever came up with was, the power to change this country rests in your hands, not in mine. And when you see tens of thousands of Americans responding to that, that the power to change this country, the power to turn back this autocratic move by the Republicans is in your hands. And each one of us can do it by just starting with simple tasks. Get one more family member, one more friend, one more coworker to join join the union.us. And then, look, we're going to need a tech core. We're going to need a comms core. We're going to need an activist core out there. You'll see that there's places that you can apply your interests and your skills to save democracy, to preserve and protect our union, our republic, and our democracy. That's what the union is. And so, again, it's jointheunion.us, but it's just exciting to see the energy that's out there and how contagious it is and how optimistic
0: people really are once they get engaged and believe they can make a difference. Right. And everybody, we hope that you'll sign up. Again, jointheunion.us. You can find all the information there. Listen, Joe, I want to thank you for joining me today. I want to thank you for giving us some light and optimism in a time when I think so many folks are feeling the stress of everything going on in our lives, both individually and collectively. Joe, where can folks find that trippy Show and where can we find you online? That Trippy Show, anywhere you find your favorite podcasts,
1: you can find me there. And then online, the best place is at Joe Trippy on Twitter, I think. But, Reed, seriously, it's always great to be on. I think we can do this Democrats, Republicans, former Republicans, Independents. It's the reason I joined the Lincoln Project and so honored to be part of the group.
0: As always, folks, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Joe, I want to thank you again. Rob and everybody on the team, thanks for all your help. And, guys, we will see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And... We'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.